Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm John Lauk, your host. Today we are joined by David Broadnax, who is a professor of history at Trinity Christian College in Illinois. We, today we are uh, conducting our interview in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, we are both in attendance at the Northern Great Plains History Conference. Welcome, David, to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be joining you here today. Why don't you start off, David, by telling us about the paper you presented this morning? Sure. So um, this morning I gave a paper called, quote, because they were the only Negro children, end quote. Um, Racial Isolation and Progress in Dallas County, Iowa, 1860 to 1910. And so for for those who are not, um, don't have a map of Iowa memorized, um, Dallas County is uh, south of Des Moines. It's, today it's considered part of the sort of Des Moines suburban area, but 150, 100 years ago, it was a pretty isolated rural community. And so my paper was looking at specifically uh, a, a family of former slaves named the McKees, uh, John and Mallard McKee and their children and grandchildren who moved to Dallas County, Iowa in 1869, eventually bought a farm, children went to school there and lived there for the next 50 years. Um, and basically I was looking at how this family was able to achieve some civil rights victories for themselves, not in spite of their isolation, but my argument was actually because of their isolation. And so I was on a panel that was, I guess, kind of chronologically broad. Um, There was my paper, there was another paper that was looking at black students at the three colleges in Fargo-Moorhead during the 1960s and 1970s. So we had two papers about the 60s. It's just that one was about the 1860s and one about the 1960s. Um, But good panel, it's been a good conference so far. David, is there something special about Iowa when it comes to civil rights and race relations? And I'm thinking in particular here about Robert Dykstra's book, Bright Radical Star, which uh, was a very interesting examination of race relations in the Hawkeye State in the 19th century. But uh, is there something unique about Iowa when it comes to race relations? Definitely there is. Um, so, you know, we in the, pop, in the popular culture, people like to think in terms of the first, like who was the first, you know, person to do this or the first state to do that or the first country would have you. And so on that level, Iowa is the first northern state after the Civil War to give black men the right to vote. And that happens, as Robert Dykstra, you know, illustrates so wonderfully in his great book, um, that happens in 1868, two years before the uh, 15th Amendment gave black men the right to vote around the country. Um, also, 1868, Iowa becomes the first northern state after the Civil War to desegregate its public schools, um, at least on paper, if not entirely in practice. So Iowa is pretty far ahead of the curve, not just nationally, but even as a Midwestern slash Western state in that regard. Um, and so, you know, in, in that way, Iowa is a, is a special place to look at in terms of civil rights history, but then also looking at why these things happened. Um, and specifically, you know, why do they happen in Iowa, in a place that 
didn't have um, had a very small percentage of black population back then, and hasn't much changed today, right? So, I think about you know we're in the presidential election year. I remember eight years ago when um, Obama won the Iowa primary, and this was sort of the sign to everyone that he was a different kind of candidate, right? He was a different kind of black candidate. He was different from Jesse Jackson or Shirley Chisholm or others because he was a black candidate who could proven who had proven that he could win quote unquote white votes. And the sign of that is that he won Iowa. So it's it's sort of like Iowa is equated with whiteness. So you win Iowa that means that you know white people must like you, right? And so that's a sign that we think and have always thought of Iowa as being a white state. And compared with a lot of other Midwestern states, that's comparatively speaking true. Um, so why is it that this comparatively small black population in Iowa is able to do things that African Americans in Illinois and Indiana and Ohio and Minnesota, where both of you were, where both of us are today, it took much longer to happen, right? So um, on that level, I would say this is what makes Iowa special. It seems like uh, you've done nev several research projects about uh, African Americans in the Midwest. Uh, is this part of a larger project or study that you're working on? Yes. Um, so this paper that I gave earlier today is part of my uh, broader book manuscript, which was um, originally my PhD dissertation that I finished at Northwestern and am now revising it for publication. And um, the manuscript is called Breathing the Freedom's Air, the African-American Struggle for Equal Citizenship in Iowa, 1830 to 1900. So this um, one family in Dallas County, Iowa, um, in the scope of the big picture, they're, they're actually a pretty small part of it because um, the larger manuscript is a social and also legal and political history of African-Americans in Iowa. Um, basically from the earliest days of black and white settlement in the 1830s up until right around the turn of the century. I can remember a book, David, called Outside In, and uh, it was all about the African-American experience in Iowa, and I remember it came out when I lived in Iowa City. Are you familiar with this book? Yes, that was um, after, I, I saw you and I share something in common. I also used to live in Iowa City, and that came out shortly after I moved away while I was um, in grad school at Northwestern. So um, yes, I, I've, I've got a copy of that book. Um, know that one well. Um, I think that book is, is good in terms of giving people who know nothing about Iowa's black history um, sort of a, a good basic but also comprehensive knowledge, right? So there's a chapter about um, African-American athletes in Iowa and there's a chapter about um, black musicians in Iowa and there's another one um, focusing on uh, black military service. Um, and each of these chapters sort of, you know, I mean, they're, they're all more uh, chronologically comprehensive than, than my work because they all start way back at the beginning and they go all the way up to the present day or I guess at this point you know 15 years ago or so um, and so for people who don't know much about it whether that's you know Iowans who don't know much about their own state or people who are interested in black history broadly and, and weren't aware that this existed which you know I certainly know from talking to folks all over the place that's true um, I think it's a good way to sort of be introduced to that history. And then from there, if they want to go into something that's, you know, let's say more, you know, intellectually robust, then I would certainly recommend uh, Robert Dykstra's book, Leslie Schwamm's book. Um, when my book comes out, hopefully I'll be able to recommend that. So hopefully it's, it's good. Well, we're looking forward to that book. Uh, I hope uh, you finish it quickly. Uh, speaking of the book Outside In, 
my strongest memory is about the chapter on the Iowa Hawkeyes and how in Iowa City, uh, the University of Iowa was uh, very much ahead of the curve in terms of recruiting and bringing in African-American athletes from parts of the Midwest and the South and uh, how there were uh, several uh, African-American athletes who played for the Hawkeyes throughout the 30s and 40s. Do you remember remember this chapter? Right. Um, so, on, and I guess this is, um, in terms of my research, that um, the sort of intercollegiate sports piece, it goes a little bit um, past what I do. I mean, it, there's a little bit of overlap because, you know, college football starts um, really in, in the Midwest in the 1890s. College baseball goes back a little bit before then. Um, so that's not something I look at a whole lot. Um, I do it to a certain extent, but on the other hand, I'm also a big Hawkeye fan. So this is, you know, this is also a topic that I know about, not just as a scholar, but as a fan of sports, right? So I would say in some ways, I was actually kind of typical um, because it's in that period of the 1890s that you see really the first uh, black athletes um, at uh, predominantly white colleges around the Midwest and of course outside of Wilberforce and, and um, Central State in Ohio, all the colleges in the Midwest are predominantly white colleges, right? So you just focus in on Iowa, you know, if you look at that time period of say the 1890s to around World War One, this is the same time that you have a guy named Saul Butler playing, uh, running, running track and playing football up at the University of Dubuque. Um, Iowa State has its first black athletes. Um, University of Iowa has its first one in the 1890s, a football player named Frank Holbrook. Um, and if you jump ahead a few years, you've got um, the great, um, the, the guy who became a judge in Chicago eventually. Um, and, I'm, and now I'm on tape and my, uh, my, my mind is frozen on me. Uh, Duke Slater, right? So, um, plays for the Hawkeyes in the, the late 1910s. But then you've also got the first black athletes, more broadly than that, around the same time at Minnesota, at Illinois, um, you know, smaller colleges even. Um, so in that regard, Iowa is, is I would say, kind of typical. Um, and in terms of where the athletes are coming from, like with most, you know, um, college sports back then, they're mainly local. I mean, this is pretty far before colleges are, you know, today you look at the Hawkeyes, they've got people from, you know, Texas, New Jersey, and California, and all over the place. Um, back then, you know, almost everybody who played for the Hawkeyes, black or white, they were from Iowa, or at best they're from Western Illinois. You know, everybody who played for, you know, the Badgers was from Wisconsin, and so on and so forth. So, um, I would, in that way, I would say that they are pretty typical. Now, nationally speaking, of course, you know, African-American athletes in the South can't even go to white colleges, let alone play for them. So they're, you know, at my grandmother's alma mater, Tuskegee, or you know, my grandfather's alma mater, Tennessee State, schools like that. Um, some of them coming up to the Midwest and going to some schools but, uh, if later on. But So, yeah, I would say um, I was, in that regard, um, say that I was not really ahead of the curve. You know my friend uh, Dana Weiner and have done some uh, research projects with her, and you also collaborated with Dana on a recent symposium held in St. Louis on African American history and the American West. Can you tell us a little bit about that conference? Sure. Um, so this was the African Americans in the 19th Century West Symposium, um, or the NCAA uh, for short, although it's not much shorter, right? Um, but 
myself, Dana Weiner, who teaches at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, and Silvana Sadali, who teaches at St. Louis University. Uh, three of us um, all do sort of black Western and Midwestern history. Uh, we've been friends a long time. We've been um, on many panels together at different conferences. And so a couple of years ago, we came up with the idea of um, why don't we try to organize a symposium on this topic? Because even though this area of scholarship is growing, still not as big as we would like it to be. And so let's um, put a thing together where we'll bring, we'll, we'll bring in the people from around the country who focus on this sort of thing. And then, you know, other historians, grad students, people from the community, anyone who wants to come by and, and take part in this, learn more about the topic, can do so. Um, and so um, after a, a huge amount of, of planning and working, and I should also mention also we're grateful to the Midwestern Historical Association for, uh, for supporting the conference. Um, we got uh, some nice financial support from, from you all um, and from our three institutions that we work at and um, some other sources. So we were able to put the whole thing together. It was uh, towards the end of this past May. So we, our keynote address was given by really the pioneer, you know, pun intended, of black Western and Midwestern history, which is Quintar Taylor. So we were thrilled to be able to have him come in and um, you know, sort of give a big picture and, and you know, give his thoughts as the person, you know, in a lot of ways, he's the reason why the rest of us were in that room. Um, and then we had 12 other papers um, that were excellent, um, at least 11 of them where I can't speak for my own, but I know all the other ones were great. Um, um, people from uh, Loyola Marymount, University of Oklahoma, um, you know, so big state schools, smaller, private schools, secular schools, Christian, you know, schools with more Christian focus, whatever it may be. And then we had, um, like I said, lots of grad students who came from the area, from other schools, um, professors, you know, there was one woman who came all the way from the University of Saskatchewan, uh, wasn't given a paper, just wanted to be there um, to hear the papers that were being given. And people came in from all over the place. And we also had remarks from Lynn Jackson, who was a direct descendant of Dred Scott. Um, so, which was fitting given that it was in St. Louis, which is of course where Dred and Harriet Scott brought their lawsuit that, you know, where they tried to get, you know, get their freedom. Um, and so um, the conference, I think, went really well. And, you know, you know something goes well when people come up to you and say, are you all gonna keep doing this? Um, and the three of us, you know, looked at the exhausted expressions on our faces and said, oh, are we gonna keep doing this? Um, but certainly I thought it was, it was great. And, you know, again, given the fact that there's, you know, Western, black Western history, people don't really think that that starts until you get to World War II or so. Midwestern history, World War I. And then black Northern history in general, there's a lot on black 19th century Northern history, but it mainly focuses on the Northeast. So in terms of black history that's in this time, in this space, the 19th century and the West and the Midwest, it's not, a, it's not, not as much about that as we would like for there to be. And so hopefully our conference played some small role in um, helping to make that happen. You mentioned one of your co-organizers uh, was Professor Sadali, and if I'm not mistaken, she has a new book out about race in the Old Northwest or something along those lines. Right. Uh, she just came out with her book um, looking at sort of the connections between race and violence and, and the law in the Old Northwest. And so, yes, so her paper um, was sort of drawn out of that, um, but yeah, that book came out right around the same time, and you know, of course it's excellent. And so, um, you know, part, again, part of that growing field of scholarship in this area.
David, you mentioned your grandmother attended Tuskegee. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your family history and how you ended up in Illinois? Sure. Um, well, my grandmother's grandfather, Henry Clayton Baker, um, was born a slave in Virginia in 1852 and got his freedom at the age of 13 when the Civil War ended. Um, I remember a couple of years ago when my son, David Jr., turned 13, and, and I said to him, you know, when your great-great-great-grandfather was your age, that's when he stopped being a slave. That's when he got to own himself and stop being a property of somebody else. Just wanted to give him a sense of, um, you know, the, the bigger context and, and the things that he doesn't have to deal with that, you know, some previous generations did have to deal with, right? But when the Civil War ended, he eventually made his way to uh, Central Alabama and married my great-great-grandmother, Sally Baker, uh, they bought some farmland in Macon County, Alabama, outside of Tuskegee, and that's where, um, even to this day, um, some members of my family still live. So they bought that land. That's the land that my grand, that my great grandfather, Frederick Douglass Baker, Senior, was born. It always blows my mind to think that my great grandfather was named after Frederick Douglass while Frederick Douglass was still alive. Um, but he was born there, and, and then you know because. Our family was one of the few families of, of former slaves that actually was able to get a piece of land. Um, my, you know, we weren't sharecroppers. Um, my great grandfather was able to learn a trade, so he was a farmer because we owned land. But he also was a carpenter. And then because we were landowners, and also because my great grandfather knew a trade, that meant that my grandmother. Um, Louise Virginia Baker Broadnex was able to go to college. She didn't go into the cotton field. She, she went to high school and she went to college and became a school teacher. Um, and then, you know, eventually I came along and so spent a big part of my childhood in Tuskegee with my grandparents as well as uh, on the south side of Chicago. So, you know, I think that's probably part of the reason that I got into history in the first place because. You can't grow up in a place like Tuskegee and not have an appreciation for history, right? You are, you drive down the street and you go past Booker T. Washington's house, right? You go in the other direction and you see where the Tuskegee Airmen base was, and you're just, you know, and and also, the, you know, the the other advantage is my um, my great grandmother lived to, and both my great grandmothers lived to an extreme old age, so I knew both of them even when I was a, you know, preteen and teenager, and so. You can't, you know, be around somebody who was alive in the 1890s and, and not have an appreciation for history, I suppose. So, um, and, and now I'm uh, in Chicago, which um, is fine, except every winter I wish I was in Alabama. <laughs> I recently read a book about the Great Migration, and one of the points of the book was the chain migration from Alabama and Mississippi in particular to Chicago whereas African-Americans in Florida or Georgia, et cetera, would move to New York City. Uh, would you say that people in Chicago are still conscious of those connections to uh, Alabama and Mississippi in particular, or is that sort of diminished over time? No, I think that's definitely still true. Um, I think partly because it hasn't ended. I mean, there are still people moving to Chicago from um, from Mississippi, from Alabama, from Louisiana, from Arkansas, places like that. Now, if you go back to the days of the Great Migration, there's definitely a strong <clears throat> pattern in terms of where you are coming from will determine where you go, right? So, 
you know, New York ends up being filled with lots of folks from the Carolinas and Virginia and Maryland. Chicago ends up being filled with lots of folks from Tennessee and, and Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama because, you know, it makes sense logically speaking. And once Los Angeles gets a large black population, that's mostly Texas and Louisiana, right? Um, now with, um, I guess, travel being easier than it was 100 years ago, 70 years ago, you know, you will get um, African Americans coming up from all different parts of the South, but I'd say it's still disproportionately from the parts of the South that, you know, you can sort of draw a, a shorter and more direct line um, from Alabama. So I think, so that's one thing, you know, this is, if you, if you think about sort of immigration and migration history, communities that have sort of that constant flow of immigrants never really lose touch with where they come from, which is you know different from when you have a bunch of people who all move to a place during a certain period of time and then nobody else comes after that. And then over time they're gonna sort of, sometimes they'll, be assimil they'll become assimilated, sometimes they'll develop a sort of uniquely hyphenated American identity. Um, and, ev and everybody will do that, but when you have people who are constantly coming you know, throughout the period, then that never really goes away. I, I think about, for instance, why, for instance, in, in Chicago, you know, the Polish-American community is, you know, sort of, has a stronger connection to Poland, I would say, than, for instance, the German-American community. Why? Because people still coming from Poland, right? Um, so that's one reason, I think. But, you know, if you think about, if, if you, I mean, we're, we're historians, so we have this habit of, just sort of walking through life and looking at everything and thinking it's all interesting and analyzing everything for its historical content, right? Um, and so, you, you know, you drive around Chicago and you see people selling fruit out of, the, out of the back of trucks and it says, you know, this fruit's from Mississippi, right? So that still means something if you're from Chicago that, oh, that we can get that straight from back home, right? Or you see, you know, there's a chain of barbecue restaurants called I-57. Right, so you know that means you know that, that means something to people that oh I fifty seven that's the highway that we took to get here that's the highway that we take every summer to go back and visit family um, things like that so um, yeah there's there's definitely still that knowledge and, and that that appreciation for the past yeah I think you're speaking about uh, identity formation and how important um, that history is for the identity of many people in Chicago now. I, uh, as part of this project I was working on about Richard Wright, um, I read a number of these books about the Great Migration, and I think Richard Wright was sort of the exception in the sense that he kind of wanted to cut ties with the past and uh, with his roots in the South, and I think he was frustrated with others who uh, wanted to maintain those ties and maintain that form of identity. And, of course, he quickly departed to New York and then France and kind of self-exiled himself. But, uh, yes, I think that is a very important part of, uh, of identity for Midwesterners, whether they be Polish Midwesterners or German or African Americans. But I wanted to ask you about this larger project about, um, about reviving Midwestern history. Do you have any thoughts on how we can uh, be better about keeping people interested in the history of the Midwest? Sure. Um I think maybe one problem is that as the, as the Midwest has sort of comparative, comparatively speaking declined, so has interest in the Western history. And so, you know, there was a time, you know, before the West Coast became as big as it is today, um, you know, there were, the, the Midwest was 
much more important, perhaps, um, in you know, economically speaking, politically speaking. It's it's still hugely important, but there was a time when it was you know even more so than it is now. And I think that you know certain parts of the Midwest have declined. Um, you know, you think I think about, for instance, when I lived in Iowa, Iowa had four representatives. Now it has four. Um, there's some folks worried that I was going to go down to three, right? Um, you know, other Midwestern states, you know, haven't really gained in that sort of political representation. Some of them are sort of just sort of treading water like Illinois. But then, you know, the South and the West, that's the part of the country that seems to be growing the most. And so I think that that's part of it. Um, I think maybe also, um, what else would I say about sort of reviving Midwestern history? Maybe part of it too has to do with stereotypes and you know, we would we hope that we as historians, as you know, educated people who study stereotypes, we, we, we don't trade in them, we study them for their historical content. But, you know, people perhaps think of the Midwest as being sort of boring and homogeneous, right? Um, you know, the East Coast, that's where things are happening. The West Coast, that's where things are happening. And these are the areas that are diverse and so forth and, and you know, progressive and all that. Um, you know, I think about, for instance, the, um, the, 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 the amazing path of, you know, legalization of same-sex marriage over the last 15 years. And people seem to forget that Iowa was the fifth state in the entire country to legalize same-sex marriage. So it was a few states um, in New England, and then it was Iowa. And then it, you know, and, but when people, I think, when folks think about this, they're going to think of this as, well, this was you know, sort of the East Coast and the West Coast sort of doing it, and then they dragged the rest of the country along with them, right? Um, and you know, that's not necessarily true. So perhaps one way to sort of revitalize Midwestern history is, I don't know, for people to, for us to remind our colleagues and the broader public perhaps um, of why it's important. You know, and, and we as historians, you know, we, we speak to other historians, but we also speak to the general public at times, right? I mean, all of us, do our part in terms of going to give lectures in libraries and, and some doing workshops with local high school and junior high school teachers, or, or at least I hope we are. I mean, I hope that there aren't any historians who are just saying, I only want to talk to other people who have PhDs and who, you know, understand terms like, you know, hegemony and so forth, and I, I don't want to talk to the general public. I mean, I hope that there aren't any of us like that who are doing that. Um, so as we are in that role in terms of sharing our work with the broader community, um, one thing that we can do is remind people of why this history matters, right? Um, and then also of reminding our colleagues, you know, people who perhaps don't do Midwestern history, maybe even people who are from the Midwest, but they, well, I don't want to write about that, who cares, um, of why it matters. And not doing it in a sort of a sort of pop culture, sensationalized way of saying, you know, for it, me as someone who does Iowa history, you know, if I say, did you know, for instance, that, um, I don't know, the, the T-Boss from TLC is from Des Moines, or, you know, did you know, I'm trying to think of some other famous people, um, did you know Roger Craig, who used to play for the 49ers, so he's from Davenport, and you say, oh, wow, that's so cool. Well, yes, it is, but then what are you supposed to do with that, right? Um, so it, it has to go beyond just sort of telling people interesting stories about who's from this place or something that happened, and, and reminding them of why it matters, right? So from my research, you know, Iowa is part of the reason that African Americans get the right to vote, that black men at least get the right to vote nationally speaking, because Iowa is at the forefront of that. You know, Iowa is at the forefront of African Americans gaining access to the public school system, right? And so 
if that history is something that people care about, and I think they do, then reminding people of the role that Iowa has to play in that. It's not just about Susan Brown and Topeka, Kansas seven years ago. It's not just about the Little Rock Nine. It's also about Susan Clark in Muscatine, Iowa in 1867, right? Very well said, David. Our guest today has been David Brodnax. He is a professor of history at Trinity Christian University in Illinois. Thank you again, David. I'm your host, John Lauk. Please join us again soon for another edition of Heartland History. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.